Today's scripture reading is from Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. One of the things that I find so uh, fascinating about the Bible is the diversity of heroes and heroines it contains. Uh, sometimes the heroines are princesses, like Queen Esther, and sometimes the heroes are prostitutes. Uh, sometimes the heroes are uh, Jews, sometimes it's Gentiles. Sometimes the heroes are really educated people, sometimes it's the uneducated, like, like the disciples. Sometimes the heroes are people that are over six feet tall, and sometimes the heroes are very short of stature, like Zacchaeus. Sometimes the heroes are people that are very morally upright. Sometimes the heroes are people with a very uh, dark past. Sometimes the heroes are even little kids that are like eight years old when King Josiah was installed as king. And sometimes the heroes are really elderly, like Daniel. Did you know that when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, he was almost 80 years old? And so one of the things that I find really fascinating about the Bible is the diversity of heroes and heroines it contains. And what we're doing in this series in particular is that we are highlighting some of the remarkable women in Jesus's family tree that deserve our recognition for the way that they lived their lives and the courage that they displayed. Because without these women in particular in Jesus's family tree, without them, we would have no Christmas. And today I specifically want to talk about someone who was Jesus's great, 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 great grandmother named Rahab. 
Now, tragically, Rahab is most known for either being a former prostitute or a liar. But when you take a deeper look into Rahab's story, she is more than those things. In fact, she is one of the most courageous, faith-filled people in the entire Bible. And so if you're unfamiliar with Rahab, let me introduce you to Rahab by transporting your imagination to Germany in 1940. You live in a neighborhood that is surrounded by Nazi sympathizers. Inside of your home, however, you are hiding two Jews that have been inside your home for the past two hours. And then all of a sudden, the worst thing possible happens. You hear a pounding on your door. Dum, dum, dum. And you look through the peephole, and you see a group of soldiers. Red bands, black swastikas on their arms. And it's the Gestapo. Hair on your arms, feel like it got jolted with electricity. Your heart is racing. Your adrenaline is like pumping through your veins. And you open the door. And they say to you, where are they? We saw two Jews enter your home. And it is at that moment you have a choice. You can either give them up and potentially save your life, or you can try and save their lives by risking your own life. So the question is, what would you do? Now, in these types of theoretical situations, uh, we always like to imagine ourselves as a hero or heroine, don't we? Uh, but in the words of the great Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When the Gestapo show up at your door, you just got punched in the mouth. So what are you going to do then? And as we take a look at Rahab's story, she is about to get punched in the mouth. But what does she do? Take a look with me at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, if you've never read the Bible, you're still probably familiar with the story of Moses and the Exodus. Well, after Moses dies, the torch is passed off to Joshua, who leads the people of God to a new home. And at the border of this new home is a city called Jericho. And so Joshua sends two spies from his special ops to go and investigate this land. And as they approach Jericho, they stay in the home of a woman named Rahab. Now the question is, why would they stay in the home of a prostitute? Well, Rahab, according to the text, it says she lived inside the city walls. Now the city walls in ancient, ancient times was like a fortress around the city. Like if you imagine Lord of the Rings, there's like a wall around the city. And so the walls were really thick. And so Rahab literally lived inside the walls right next to the gate of the city or the entrance of the city where people would come in and go out. And so when tourists would go into Jericho, the first thing that they would literally see was a brothel. 
And so there was a lot of foot traffic that was taking place there, so it was a really strategic place to be. And so for these two spies, they thought to themselves, because of all the foot traffic, this is a place for us to sort of easily blend in with all the other tourists that are going inside and outside of Jericho. Unfortunately, when the two spies go into Rahab's home, uh, they are seen. Uh, they are, uh, people see them, wit uh, people witness them go into their home and they're discovered. And in verse 2 to 3, it says this, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So what does Rahab do? Verse 4 to 6. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Now, I realize that we're all urbanites, and so when we hear language like stalks of flax, we're like, what is that? Here's a picture of what flax looks like. So it's pretty tall. And so here are two spies on the other team that Rahab doesn't even know on her rooftop, and she covers them with stalks of flax so that they'll be hidden. So Rahab chooses the second option. She saves their lives at the risk of her own life. And how does she do it? She does it by telling a lie. Let me just push the pause button here because it's at this moment that a lot of people ask the semi-tangential question to the story, which is, when Rahab lied, was it okay or not? Was it permissible or not? Was it a sin or not? And here a lot of scholars would say, yeah, it, it, you know, it was totally okay for her to do this given the situation that she was in. Other scholars say, no, a sin is a sin. So this is what philosophers refer to as situational ethics. Are there certain situations and scenarios where sometimes it's okay to do certain things? So I'll give you an example. Uh, sometimes in the, in the burbs, people will put up uh, a sign on, the, on their fence that says, beware of dog. Meanwhile, they might not even have a dog, but they put the sign up to mislead burglars into thinking there's actually a dog there. Sometimes the police, they drive cars that don't really look like police cars. They look like regular civilian cars. Is that okay or is that not? I'll give you another example. Uh, let's say uh, someone is about to propose to another person and they want to make it a big surprise. So during the whole course of the day, they're lying to them so that the proposal is a surprise. Is that okay or is that not? This is like situational ethics. So some scholars would say yes, so some scholars would say no. So what is the answer to that question? And the answer to the question is not going to be in today's sermon. What you can do instead as a New Year's resolution is to register for a community group if you have not. <laughs> And you can talk to your CG leader about what they think about situational ethics because this is not a, a tweet kind of answer. It's actually a pretty exhaustive answer. I have some thoughts on it. I go back and forth all the time on this. Uh, and, and some other things to think about is, you know, were there only two options? 
Maybe there is three or four. How do we know? And so these are, these are semi-tangential things that I wanted to say because you might be thinking about it. But here's what we do know for sure. Regardless of whether it was right or wrong for Rahab to lie in and of itself, we do know she saved the lives of these two spies. And the people from the Jericho police bit her message hook, line, and sinker. And this is what we read in verse 8 through 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So you can imagine, you know, placing yourself in the shoes of the two spies, hiding under flax, wondering, is she going to give us up or not? And Rahab goes up to the roof and she says, listen, I know that the Lord your God has given you this land. When someone says something like, I know, what does that sound like? It sounds a little bit like faith, doesn't it? And then she goes on to make a profession of faith, and she says, I know that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. It's not just general faith, but it's a specific profession of faith about Israel's God that she is making here. And one of the things that I find so remarkable about Rahab is that she didn't see the parting of the Red Sea, did she? She didn't, she didn't see with her eyes the defeat of King Sihon and Og. She didn't watch it on YouTube. She just heard of these stories from the Jericho Tribune about what God was doing for this people. But even though she didn't see it, she believed it. You know, oftentimes we equate seeing with believing. And sometimes I talk with many of you who, uh, in frustration, who say, you know, if God were just to show himself to me in a burning bush, then of course I would believe in him. But if you take a look at the story of the Israelites who saw the parting of the Red Sea, who saw manna fall from the sky, even some of them did not believe. You know, Judas Iscariot, he lived with Jesus every day. For three years, he saw him performing miracles, and yet Judas Iscariot, despite seeing, still did not believe. Just because you see something doesn't automatically equate to belief. And so how does Rahab go from unbelief to belief? And this is one of the things that is always so fascinating for me. How, do, how does any of us, because it's not like we've seen the parting of the Red Sea. We just heard the stories in Sunday school too. So how does any of us come to a point of belief? And, and reading stories about you know, a, a person's spiritual journey and hearing stories about a person's spiritual journey is one of the most fascinating things to me. And I want to read you a quick excerpt from a woman named Asa Jones who moved from unbelief to belief 
It's a little long, but it's, it's worth your time. And this is what she says. I was a devout atheist for over 20 years. The worst idiots were the Christians. I hated them because in their ignorance of naturalism, they failed to see that there was no reason for the rest of the world to believe in their God, live by their standards, or give a damn about what they had to say. Yet there they were acting as if they had a copyright on truth. Their pretentiousness sickened me, despite my being equally pretentious toward them. The Bible didn't make sense to me, but why did it make sense to others? What were they seeing that I didn't? Did they so desperately want there to be a God that they had deluded themselves into thinking that there was one? It was New Year's Day, 1998. I made a resolution to read the entire Bible again. In the months that followed, I kept my resolution, and I began noticing a change in my way of interpreting the Bible. The, this book was reading me as surely as I was reading it. Every time I found fault with its God, I ended up finding a fault of my own. For weeks, I was on a high, the type of high that comes about by feeling that one is on the edge of making some sort of profound discovery. I wasn't sure what I was discovering, but my perception of this world was changing. In July, I read these words, who do you say I am? I see it. What I had to say about who Christ was said more about me than it did about him. At this moment, I saw it. I saw what the truth of the Bible was and I was humbled, more than humbled. I was broken. I had been a fool. I had paraded around thinking myself to be the sophisticated, oblivious to the trail of toilet paper clinging to my shoe. For the first time in my life, I became aware of my soul and how dirty it was when the light of Christ fell upon it. My accusing finger turned around and pointed right back at me. I sucked. Christianity wasn't, uh, wasn't what was wrong with the world. The lack of education wasn't what was wrong with the world. I was what was wrong with the world. I began praying for forgiveness to a God whose existence I thought was intellectually indefensible, but he was very, very real. You know, one of the things that I love about our community is that it is filled with a lot of brilliant skeptics and, and thinkers who are sort of on this spiritual pilgrimage to figure out if there is a God or not. And I understand the sentiment of wanting to actually see God for yourself, at least on YouTube, because nothing is ever true unless it's on video, right? But there is something about the psychology of faith where seeing something where it is believing in something that you cannot see that makes it so powerful. There is something about the psychology of faith where it is believing in something that you cannot see that makes it so powerful. I, you can actually make a case that a faith that believes in something that you cannot see is actually far more powerful than a faith in something that you can see. Rahab didn't see everything God had done for Israel. But even though she didn't see it and only heard of it, she believed in it. And I think one of the things that is so remarkable about Rahab's belief is not only the fact that she has faith in this God, but she has faith in this God despite the bio biographical sketch that is portrayed of her in Scripture. 
You know, every single time Rahab is mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, every single time Rahab is mentioned, her occupation is tied to her. And no, she was not a surgeon. No, she was not a teacher. Rahab was a prostitute. But before we are too quick to judge Rahab for being a prostitute, I do want you to place yourself in the shoes of Rahab for a moment. I have two daughters. Most little girls don't dream of becoming a prostitute one day. You know what they dream about? Most little girls dream about becoming a Disney princess. Every day, my girls, as soon as they come home, they wear a dress, they wear a crown, they have a, a scepter, you know, and, and they, they, they march around like they're, they, they, they are queens and, and princesses. Something must have happened in Rahab's life that caused her to go down this path. It's very possible that she grew up in some kind of dysfunctional family, or her dad had a debt he couldn't pay. So what does he do? He sells off his daughter. Something happened in Rahab's life that led her down this path to her current occupation. And when we take a look at where she is now, where does she live? Center City, Manhattan? No, she literally lives on the margins of the city, on the city wall. She's also socially an outcast from her own people. And yet, despite all of those things, you can make a case that Rahab had even greater faith than Moses himself. How do we know that? When Rahab hides these two spies, she doesn't hide them on a condition. She just hides them. It is only after she saves their lives, she makes a request. That takes great faith. She didn't know what the two spies were going to say, but she had faith that their God was not only all-powerful enough to take their city, but she had faith that their God was also not only all-powerful, but all-loving and all-merciful as well. She didn't go to seminary. She didn't know the Ten Commandments. She didn't see any of the Ten Plagues. And yet here is a woman with such remarkable faith uh, that we see demonstrated. And in verse 12 to 16, this is what we read. Rahab says this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The word kindness is used here multiple times and it's, it's probably my favorite Hebrew word in the Old Testament. And it is the Hebrew word chesed. It is used over 250 times uh, in the Old Testament. You know, you know how much I love this word? I don't have any tattoos, but about 12 years ago, I was this close to getting a tattoo in a tattoo parlor. And, uh, and, and I spelled it for the, the artist, and it looked kind of weird, so I didn't want to do it. But meaning-wise, it had a lot of meaning for me because the word chesed means love. But it's not just 
an emotional kind of love or like abstract love because love in our you know in our you know in our language it doesn't really mean that much but in hebrew if you attach a bunch of stuff to the word love like loving kindness or or um you know other things to it then it makes more sense but what, what the hebrew word has said means is a type of loyal love expressed in action I'll give you an example of this. Um, about a month or two ago, I was at a gala to raise money for uh, North Korean refugees. And I was able, I had the honor of listening to a testimony of a North Korean woman who, like many refugees, they cross the river when it freezes at night in the middle of the, the winter from North Korea to, to China. Unfortunately, she was sold as a, a, a sex slave and she got pregnant. And when she had her little girl and was, you know, abused left and right, she, she knew that she had, there was no future for her or her, her child. And, she, and so she fled, along with other North Korean refugees. And, and the other refugees were not exactly happy that a one-year-old was going with them because it could also endanger them if the baby's crying and it would slow them down. But this mother, she did not care. And she would talk about how tired she was carrying this one-year-old baby all the way south of China. She didn't care. You know, there aren't many words that can describe a mother's love. But said, super close. That is the kind of love that is being talked about here. A loyal love that will not give up on another person, but is expressed in action. And Rahab is saying, hey, I risked my neck to save you guys. Now please be loyal and return that love to me. And you know what they say? Our lives for your lives. If something happens to you, something will happen to us. And if you know, if you grew up in the church, you probably know the song, Joshua on the walls of Jericho, and the walls come crumbling down, except for one, one home the home of a woman who lived in the city walls, Rahab. Her home did not come crumbling down. And everyone who lived under this covering of Hesed was saved. Now, we can go another full sermon to talk about what that time must have looked like where Rahab is trying to just bring everyone to her home and everyone's like, what are you talking about, you traitor? But somehow she was convinced or able to convince her family to go find shelter, salvation, and refuge under this Hesed love. And what is this story ultimately pointing to? The greatest picture of Hesed love of all, and that is Jesus Christ. For anyone who has faith in him, just like Rahab had faith in the spies and their God, will find salvation and will find refuge because it is on the cross where Jesus says, my life for your life. I will die for your sins so that you can find salvation under uh, the blood of the lamb. I, love what, I like what Tim Keller says when he says, the determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past, but Christ's past, not your record, but Christ's record. There's another quote that I want to read from Sam Albury, and he says, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, scandalous, and foreigner, and prostitute. The family Jesus comes from 
anticipates the family he has come for. And Rahab is one of those people that he has come for. You are one of those people uh, that he has come for. And uh, as we take a step back uh, from this, this story in Joshua 2, when we read the rest of Rahab's story, this prostitute actually does turn to a princess. Because after the dust settles and the city of Jericho is overtaken, Rahab falls in love to a man that would not treat her like a prostitute, but like the princess she really is, a man named Salmon, a Jewish man. And together, they have a son named Boaz, who you heard about last week. Boaz meets a girl named Ruth, and they get married. And then they have a kid named Jesse. And then Jesse gets married. And then Jesse has a son named David. And if you follow the scarlet thread down David's line, who do we meet? Eventually, King Jesus himself. And it's all because of his great, 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 great grandmother, Rahab. And so this prostitute quickly turns into a, prince, a princess. Rahab, in many ways you can say then, was not only responsible for saving her own family, but you can make a case that it is because of Rahab that it was because of her the savior of the world has also come as well. I want to um, close with just one application that ties in pretty nicely with uh, Pastor David's call to worship uh, that he gave. And um, I want you to place your shoes in the shoes of Rahab for one more moment. Spies have just left. And... Um, She's trying to get everyone in her family to come to her home. And, and now it's just a waiting game, right? There's no, they're not, the spies are not texting her saying, hey, we're going to be back in a week. Just hold on tight. They're not texting. She, she doesn't know if they're going to come back. She's just waiting. Days go by. A week goes by. She doesn't hear anything. But she's waiting. And similarly, as we wrap up 2021, you know, all of us are always waiting for something. Some of you are waiting for your dad or mom or sibling to finally know who Jesus is, and you've been waiting a long time. For others of you, you're, you're waiting to finally meet the one. You thought it was going to happen in 2021 with things opening up, and you feel like your life might be on pause. For others of you, you're waiting to finally have your first child because you've been trying for year after year and it's not working. For others of you, 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 you did a job interview like a month ago and you're still waiting to hear back word of whether you got the job or not. We're, all, we're always constantly in seasons of waiting. So we're always waiting, but what really matters is how we wait. And oftentimes when we wait, we look at our waiting years like wasted years. But when you think about Rahab, when she was waiting, she was not wasting that time. When she was waiting, you know what she was doing? She was, she was developing and growing deeper roots of trust in these two spies and in their God. 
During your season of waiting, whatever you're waiting for, you can wait anxiously, nervously, butting your fingernails, or you can wait by anchoring your trust in God, knowing that He has a proven track record, knowing He's faithful, knowing He's a good, good Father that displays His said love for us. The question is, though, how are you going to wait for what you're waiting for? Are you going to trust in Him, or are you going to waver back and forth? This is a reminder as we wrap up this year to look at someone like Rahab, whose life was transformed, and who waited on a God who could she, who who she could not see. Because faith oftentimes comes by hearing and not just seeing. And today you are hearing that same message. Let me pray for us. Lord, I know that, uh, you know, living in a microwave generation, it doesn't exactly help us wait patiently. Uh, if anything, we hate it. <laughs> um, but help us as we wait to wait like Rahab, to trust, not knowing when it was going to happen, but trusting that you're a good, good father, trusting that even if things don't play out the way that we thought it would, still knowing that you are a good, good father the kind of God who has a loyal love for us expressed in action, knowing that if you died for us and have given your best gift to us, how will you not, along with Jesus Christ, graciously give us all things? Help us to remember that. In your name I pray, amen.